Converse New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Joanna. Hello. How was Canada? It was great. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. Yeah. Did you have Molson? Is that I, required? Yeah, it's around. Labatt. I actually passed the Molson, um, original Molson Brewery. Really? Yeah, and I had took a picture and I didn't share it with the team, but I wanted to. <laughs> Is there a lot of pride in Canada for like Molson and Labatt? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yes, I did have it a few times actually, so like at restaurants. Like, people. What about Crown Royal? Like to me, that's the thing I think of most when I think of Canada personally. Yes, I think there's pride in crown royal as well no, i didn't, didn't have, have any, any. <laughs> i didn't have any this trip so what did you what did you what, did you, what have you drank recently what was, what's been awesome okay well while i was there uh i had a bottled caesar <laughs> oh my goodness yeah you know, mott's clamato wait really yeah i've never had that <sighs> okay well it was it was my first time having this it was like the og rtd because it's been around for like 20 years. Really? I've never even heard of this. <laughs> really? No. Oh, the oh, Bloody man. Caesar? Oh, my goodness. No, Lucky bottled. you. you oh, bottled. bottled. Yeah, you have. Oh, yeah. So it's like it's been in a bottle for 20 years. Like not, not the oh, one. Oh, well, not the one I like, found. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that should have been awesome. And vintage, so vintage, vintage Bloody Caesar? A vintage Bloody Caesar. Uh, have, you, have you guys had Caesars, though? I, know. I have. Okay. Yeah, it became enough of a thing. Like – in my restaurant days here in Seattle, we get a lot of people coming down from Canada asking for it. And so at one of the restaurants mm-hmm. I worked at at the time, they eventually decided to start stocking Clamato because people, you know, Canadians would come down and ask for it. And we decided we got tired of telling them no. And I tried it. And, you know, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, it didn't really do it for me, but it was fine. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fine. I don't, um, I don't understand. Like, so sweet. what is it? Is it because the clan juice makes it sweet? Yeah. And kind well, of kinda sweet and briny. It's a little briny. weird. Yeah. Well, you know, people like uh bloody mary's with like an oyster yeah i'm not you know i mean i think i've i mean i don't think i've expressed this since you've joined the podcast but i don't like bloody mary's i i used to really like bloody mary's and now i cannot really drink them anymore because they're too acidic i think they're so overrated too (laughs) yeah like i think the gap between a great bloody mary and a and everything else is pretty big like Mm -hmm. a great bloody mary is a great drink but everything else is kind of like i don't want it so are you like a would you order a Bloody Mary on a plane? Me? Uh, yeah. No. It wouldn't be no, my go-to drink. Most people who's like, mm-hmm. like my, my plane drink. Mm-hmm. You no. drove, though. You didn't fly, right? No, but, we drove, yeah. So we, drove. so we can't talk to you about your plane drink. What else? Um, so that was like kind of the, I mean, I had some Wayne Gretzky wine. Are you see? Oh. <laughs> I love this. My father-in-law had a few bottles, so we See a big Wayne Gretzky it. fan? Yes. I mean. I love it. A hockey, right? Big hockey fan. Big Canadian person. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> a lot of Canadian pride. So I love it. Yes, but then so that's my Canada trip. But then I had the Fremont Brewing last oh, week. Yeah. How was I it? had the head full of fresh hops hazy IPA. Was it delicious? It was delicious. Yes. Thank you for having that sent, Zach. My pleasure. I had to prove Adam wrong that I had I had connections after all. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I haven't tried mine yet. I actually forgot to take it home last night, so now mm-hmm. it's in my bag for today mm-hmm. and I'll try it tonight. But it was really amazing. Yeah, delicious. I've never had a fresh hop beer. So, so that how, was really good. How long does a fresh hop beer last? Like how long can you store it for? I would say you can. You should probably drink it within a month of, of it being mm. canned. Okay, more so less. I should drink these really quickly. Yeah, like definitely don't hang on to them. They are not uh, collector's items. Like drink, no. drink all four tonight. Don't age them. <laughs> well, it depends on how much you have to do tomorrow, Adam, but maybe. I just have to fly somewhere, so. Oh, yeah. So that's probably a good idea. Sweet. So Zach, what about you, man? 
Well, you know, I think probably the most interesting thing I had in the last week or so was um, a really lovely bottle of Suave um, mm-hmm. from um, Inama, which is a winery in the Suave region. Uh, and from so Suave is one of these like as longtime listeners will know, I have a soft spot for Italian white wines, especially from northern Italy, but really from the whole country. And Suave in particular is a wine that you know kind of got a bum rap in the states because. Um, so much of it was produced and imported in the 70s and 80s, and most of it was pretty bad because um, mm-hmm. it was, you know, essentially bulk wine. And but Suave as a place is really beautiful. The classic, uh, the classical region kind of encompasses these um, hillsides above the valley flatland, and um, and this one in particular from a, a vineyard called Monte Carbonare is one of my favorite spots for um, Suave, and it was just delicious. I there's something about the kind of like appley slight kind of citrusy notes of the wine with it, it from this vineyard in particular it has a little bit of a smoky characteristic that I really like. Mm. Um, it's just delicious. It's a great, like kind of fall white wine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're definitely getting to the time of year here in Seattle where I want to be drinking more red wine, but sometimes, you know, I'm making, I think like chicken or whatever. And that, that's what, that's what I had with that the other night. And it was, it was delicious. And also a lot of fresh hot beer, just like you guys. Mm-hmm. Cool. Very cool. How about you, Adam? Oh, so thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> Someone's got it. <laughs> you both. You can ask yourself, I guess, but I don't know about that. So two things that I had uh, recently that were delicious. One is um, Friday night, Josh and Ethan and I went to the Rockwell Place, which has reopened, which is uh, Toby nice. Caccini's other bar. Mm-hmm. And we had his cocktail, the Japanese, mm-hmm. which is just, it's like, it's kind of a riff on a Mai Tai, okay. but then he serves it up in a coupe and- it's and it was with cognac, mm. and it's just delicious. Like mm. I can't, I, I can't describe it besides saying it's delicious, and you would crave it once you've had it. It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Probably should only have one though, because it's very strong. Mm. I'm also trying to drink less cocktails starting this week. Uh, <laughs> also, <laughs> I just because I feel like with cocktails, like they really hit you, man. Mm-hmm. You know, and <laughs> they I do. Just, I really need to get away from that. So, but even though I love them, uh, and then. I had a really nice bottle of wine with Naomi. Uh, we had a, a really delicious bottle last night, actually. And I can't remember the producer's name, and I'm really apologize for that. But it was a <laughs> it was a vino nobile di Montepulciano, which, uh, <laughs> as they would like to now be known of nobile, which is like, oh, you know, <laughs> they really want to. Yeah, I mean, it's just like trying to rebrand themselves. Was very good. I I don't. I don't believe the the people who are like it's the same as Brunello. I mean, it's not, uh, but it's very good, and it was very is very. Uh, Salcetto was the producer, great producer. Cool. Nice, um, but yeah, a little very easy drinking. You know, it was not as not what I would think of as like again being able to like compare Brunello next to it. It's just not the same, but special in its own way. And I encourage you to look for these wines because they're vastly cheaper than Brunello. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was cool. Just, you know, the other mountain. That's all. Just yeah. side by side. Uh, so anyways, so this week we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to get a little wonky business because we haven't done that in a while. Um, because there's, there's a lot of stuff happening in uh, the food and beverage world right now in terms of acquisitions, mm-hmm. uh, IPOs, etc. So we want to talk through a few of these and give our takes, uh, both on the media front as well as uh, – on the sort of beverage front. So, you know, to quickly run down before we get into them, you know, there's the upcoming Wink IPO. 
the infatuation was purchased by JP Morgan. Uh, you actually have Janice Robinson being purchased recently. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, you have, uh, you know, Coppola earlier this summer being purchased. Uh, you have Constellation, you know, sort of saying they're going to start making higher end acquisitions. So a lot of stuff happening in the market. So I think, you know, it'd be interesting to talk about this, especially in this post-COVID world, like why a lot of this activity is happening right now and giving our thoughts on some of these. So I thought that, you know, the, the first one that really would be interesting to start with is Wink, right? And mm-hmm. I think Wink's interesting for a lot of reasons. One, because a lot of us know it, uh, and also because it's a wine club, right? So, um, they are trying to go public. They've released their S ones. Uh, a few of us have dug into them. There, it's interesting to sort of see what they're doing. Um, but you know, Wink is a business that I, I was always sort of unclear how it was doing. Right. So mm-hmm. I guess you know, have both of you ever used Wink before? Or do you know? Do you have friends that have used Wink? Not that I know of. It's been around since 2011. Yeah, it's right? it's yeah. an old company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an old company. Actually, one of the founders now, I think, has left the company and is now um, a mass. The like the the gins and stuff is mm-hmm. it now, oh, yeah. now has a mass. Oh, okay. Um, so I don't know actually like what the ownership structure looks like anymore, but you know, has always purported to be a very successful wine business. Mm-hmm. Um, Zach, were you familiar with? It? Have you ever used it before? Uh, I haven't personally, I've tried a couple of the wines, like, um, friends have, you know, been over at friends' houses and they've, they've opened a bottle or two. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I would say that my awareness of it was frankly, mostly through podcast advertising. Yep. <laughs> they, they, they have they, the guys on some podcasts I listen to. I mean, they uh, prevalent by far. Yeah. 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 And so I always, you know, a, a question I wanted to ask you, Adam, cause you, you mentioned that you've kind of dug, dug into the financials yeah. and all that is I think uh, from a sort of not business person's perspective here, I would assume that the, the, essentially the fundamental business proposition of something like Wink is that you can through scale, you know, through just through scale, you can acquire a lot of bulk juice, private label it mm-hmm, and exactly. sell it at a price that's kind of like, you know, competitive with what most people are buying at a grocery store. And because it doesn't have another like retail presence, people are kind of just, you're not really competing with that, with those store brands or, or other just kind of, you know, you know, kind of affordably priced brands. Mm -hmm. That said, you are reliant on a subscription model, which feels fraught. I don't know what, 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 what is going on with them? Cause you said you dug into this info. Like, does it seem like they are actually being, they're having success? (laughs) So that's what's interesting. So first of all, subscriptions have ha- have been trendy now, mm-hmm. especially in the world of VC for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the past like 10, 15 years, because there's this belief that you get this like flywheel effect and that there's recurring revenue, right? So like, sure. you know, Wink wasn't the only ones, right? We have Blue Apron, we have, you know, and I mentioned Blue Apron specifically here because I think that there's a lot of comparables in what you did see in the S1s to Wink. Um, but you had Blue Apron, you have, you know, kitchen startups we've talked about before. Um, a lot of these things were the ideas, like if we can get you into this, you know, churn, that basically you won't leave because of convenience, right? Mm-hmm. And then you are recurring revenue that we can bank against, you know, all the time. The problem is that in a lot of these businesses, the cost per acquisition is very high. And so when we say cost per acquisition, I mean, how much does it, do you have to spend in advertising to get one customer? So, you know, I remember when Blue Apron, Blue Apron was like looking at like 45 to $50 a customer, right? Mm-hmm. It was huge. And they were, they were saying, you know, in a lot of ways that like their cost per acquisition, when they, be, they believe that 
even though that was basically how much it would cost to get you in the door, they would make their money the second time when you ordered the next box. So the goal, right, was like you ordered one, they basically lose money on it. But the problem is that they were continually losing money. That's why like mm-hmm. once they finally got public, their stock price just tanked. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Wink, I think it's a little bit that. It's also like, you know, they want to um, they want to grow as so basically the goal with, with a company like this is you need scale, right? The only way that you make money is get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the question with Wink is like, how big can the business get? Mm-hmm. And, you know, how much will they be able to continue to sorry grow more and more customers? Well, I want to ask you a question in this real quick, Adam, which is like, do you think that they see, obviously you have to just kind of make a, make a educated guess here, but do you think that they see their target, audience as people who like are those are the people who are buying you know um charles shaw are they the people who are buying you know box wine like are they going after that slice of the market because that's a pretty big slice and it would make sense to go after it i would wonder if they're going after if they're trying to go after what their pricing model suggests which is like a little bit higher in customer are there really that many people who who truly want to be subscribed to a private label wine club forever? Like that would be my question is like, do those people get tired of the wink offerings after a little while and say, well, you know what I can, if I'm buying, spending $15 a bottle, I can get a lot of other things. Well, Jen, who do you think their customer is? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I would say, I, I think that wink is, is popular and successful because it's, um, like the delivery of it. It's less about the discovery, I think. Mm. I don't know. I think it's more just like, mm-hmm. you know that you have a box of wine coming to your house, however yep. often it will be coming. Yep. I think, so what you guys are saying is like, I think what the market thought in terms of how Wink was going to be successful. And if you look at their S1s, COVID saved them. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they actually weren't doing that well prior, but they also weren't doing well in the way that I think we all think that they, their core business model was, which is like, they're going to be a subscription wine club. What, where they were making profit, especially in the time before COVID, before everyone said, oh shit, like here's this wine club I can subscribe to is they were actually creating brands right. mm-hmm. through the, the box. And they have a few, they have like kind of a natural e-wine brand now that mm-hmm. um, they were then also placing in the stores. Oh, oh interesting. And that is where I think they were that was a, a, a pivot I think that was happening inside the business um, again, prior to COVID and then COVID really caused their business. When you look at their financials to rebound. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why they must be trying to go public now because their numbers look good at the moment. And right. it's like, okay, it's time for the investors to get out. Like it's just, it's time for everyone to make the, the piece they needed to make. There's, mm-hmm. there's not really going to be an opportunity to raise again. So like, let's, let's go public. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll see like if the market is easy or hard on them or if they're even able to get out. Right. You, you see all the time of people look at these, these S ones and then say, uh, I don't think I would pay the price when this thing goes public. And then, you know, the banks walk away and they never even take a public in the first, you know, at the end of the day. So, so it's unclear. Um, but I thought that was, what was really interesting was all of us, I think assume their business model was subscription and it is, but this, this core piece of these like four ish brands they've created really being the profit drivers for them Mm. is really interesting. And I do wonder like, is that a business in and of itself? Like, do we think there are opportunities for companies to create wine brands 
that ultimately then would get bought by the larger wine companies of the world. Like, is that what Gallo, Trincaro, Constellations there? Is that what they're looking for? I mean, I feel like they're smart enough they can create their own brands. Right. But I don't know. Yeah. Because like, Joanna, I, I, I'm curious, like when when we look at some of these, the again, those kind of brands that they might be competing against, these really large national or international brands, is there some value maybe in essentially like a refresh? Because if we look at the history of that category, a new kind of dominant wine or dominant wines emerge every so often that kind of sweep away a lot of what, I mean, not that the, you know, kind of diehards of a brand don't linger, but a lot of that market is actually pretty, isn't that, it doesn't seem to me to be super brand loyal as much as they're kind of category loyal. So maybe mm-hmm. Wink's thinking is, hey, yeah, if we, if these brands get enough traction, maybe we can be replacing, I mean, I don't know if anyone's going to really have replaced Apothic Red, but it could happen. It wouldn't shock me. Mm-hmm. Apothic Red came out of nowhere in the first place. Oh, yeah. Um. Well, I don't know. I, I guess I still just don't know who, who is subscribing um, and also how, like what the retention is too, because yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe people are brand loyal to Wink uh, that it's been around for so long, right? Well, yeah, but I think, so the, the other question though is more like, do you think people are brand loyal to like certain wines at that price point? So like, oh, I see. Yes. Do you, yeah. <laughs> I do. I think people have favorites yeah. and they return to them over and over again, especially if it's like a, a solid, uh, affordable wine. Agreed. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think that Wink was trying to do is create those brands. Got it, got it. Right. So that, you know, maybe again, it, it was clearly a, a sort of a side hustle pivot, but yeah, so now they'll go public and we'll see, uh, who knows. So next sort of quick hitter here, uh, <laughs> is basically the acquisition of Coppola. So, this one was surprising to me. I, I didn't think they were for sale. Uh, you know, we had, we had talked to Francis, uh, <laughs> Joanna and I recently on a different podcast, uh, for fine beer. Sorry, Zach. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I just, I was surprised they sold. Um, I don't know. Reactions from both of you. I don't know a ton about Delicato. Like what's their, I what's honestly their don't either. <laughs> Do they I honestly have- don't either. I just know they're a larger wine company, but mm-hmm. like, Unlike some of the other ones, again, where I could tell you the brands and I was able to tell you the brands even prior to Vine Pair. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I don't know. I mean, again, like some of these companies are just, they're so famous. Like you knew, for example, that Constellation like owned Miomi, mm-hmm. right? Or you knew that Gallo owned Apothic and Lamarca, right? I, I don't, I could not tell you what they own. Mm-hmm. I just, well, the most famous thing that Delicato owns is Boda Box, which is a <gasps> absolute interesting wow, monster. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Interesting. I'm not a Boda Box drinker. I don't think I've ever had it. <laughs> I've tried it before, but uh, not a regular drinker. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So do we Maybe think- we'll have to do it on the podcast. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Oh, yeah. Um, do we think Coppola was doing well, not doing well? Is this going to be like a marquee brand for Delicato? I mean, so again, with these, when it's private, you never know. I just remember that it it was a really big brand in the 90s and early 2000s. And I really hadn't heard of it and heard about it in a while. Coppola. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I honestly do wonder if it was like just, you know, the name is still well known enough that it's worth the risk for a, a, a larger company mm-hmm. to dump some marketing money into it and to see. Um, but yeah, and and maybe the the family was like, eh, like what's the point of this anymore? Like, 
But didn't he also just buy a new? Yes. High end. High end. So maybe he was like, I'm. I'm done with this. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I, my understanding of, of how the sale worked is like there, the Coppola's will retain Inglenook, which is right. that like, you know, historic property in Napa and then the prop, their property in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And so I, I see this as more like probably, I mean, God, this is mildly grim, but like, you know, Francis isn't exactly young mm-hmm. and probably there are like estate reasons in part to like, you know, it's a lot easier to navigate these kinds of sales when the, you know, the principals are alive mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and something like, like if they're thinking, look, you know, no one, I don't know, again, you know, you can, you can sell these things off afterwards. Maybe someone in the family wants to continue to have a hand in it, but it's totally plausible to me that, that part of it is just like, there there's value here. Maybe someone, maybe Delicato approached, maybe they were out looking, you know, quietly looking for buyers and it's just kind of a like, take this load off our shoulders kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Not not necessarily, you know, maybe from Delicato's side, maybe there's a real branding opportunity here. Like you said, maybe there's a belief that with with a little more like an outside influence, a little bit bigger operation and some just mm-hmm. kind of new blood, they can, you know, boost it back up. But but might, some of it might just be as simple as, you know, getting a, a big unwieldy company into the hands of a larger company that can handle it more than, a, you know, a family. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Um, okay, moving on to our, our next quick hit in, in the beverage side. Maybe first. Like a buzzer sound or something like a you know like a ding. Yeah, Keith said he has sound effects. He hasn't hit. Them. Come on, Keith. Where's uh oh. No, that's I want like a ding. Uh, there we go. That sounds about right. Oh. <laughs> That was the best. Anyways, so uh, that was great. At, we just high five in the nice. studio. Um, oh, that okay. wasn't a sound effect. Okay. <laughs> so, anyways, so in the beverage side, so uh, recently this week, Constellation announced that they are, you know, still really bullish in, in their growth projections, and they're going to be looking at a bunch of different opportunities, and a lot of it's going to come with uh, many more uh, acquisitions. Uh, but also what's interesting is that Constellation recently, finally, I think, sold off all of its sort of, you know, lower end wines to Gallo, right? So they're clearly trying to go more high end in the wine and they're looking at more acquisitions in spirits uh, and still a little bit in beer and seltzer. Uh, curious again, like, what do you think they're doing here? Why do you think this is happening now? Is there something that they feel like they've seen in the pandemic that would make them want to make all these moves? I don't know. Isn't it just like uh, be to be as of a company as possible like a big mammoth of a com- of a brand like are we competing with like a diageo right like yep huge yeah but i think but i think there's something interesting in the idea of simultaneously divesting yourself of some of brands right. and right. business in one part of the market and investing in another mm-hmm. like i think the interesting thing to me here is it seems like gallo and uh constellation are making kind of you know they're they're sort of taking opposite sides of a wager here, right? Like Gallo is saying, Hey, we think either we can turn, we can do more with these brands than you were doing or that. I think that's 100% of their thing. Or, or, or that, I mean, again, remember too, like so much of the wine market and much of the market in general was weirdly supercharged during COVID because of, you know, um, a lot of money that the federal government dumped into, you know, that rightly, you know, went directly to people's pockets and things like that. And really not just um, supported, but frankly grew a lot of these kind of consumer categories, including like the price point for wine ticking up because people, a lot of people had maybe a little bit more money in their pocket and frankly, less to do with it. Um, and I think maybe Gallo is, is betting, you know what, as things return to quote unquote normal, 
people are going to return to um, lower price point wine and and want those things and being positioned mm-hmm. with those brands will be good. And and Constellation might be making the opposite side of the wager saying, look, we think that all these people who have, you know, all this premiumization, as we've talked about on the podcast before, we think this is sticking around. We think people who have gone from a $10 to a 15 or a 15 to a $20 bottle of wine are not going back. And I don't know that I think either one of them is inherently right or wrong. I think we will see. If I had to pick a side of that wager, I don't know. I think I would lean slightly towards uh, actually towards Gallo's side of things. I think we're in a little bit of a sugar sugar high uh, mm-hmm. in the wine market right now, but I wouldn't be confident in that bet. Yeah, I honestly think if I were to wait, if I were to look at it, I would say if I were Gallo, I would trust myself to be able to bring new people into wine and then mm-hmm. trade them up throughout my like my business. Portfolio, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then to just assume that I'm going to finally get you know, I'm going to get new customers just on, on my premium end. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. unless Constellation's whole model instead is like, look, we're just going to buy those customers. Right. So like when they bought the prisoner, they're basically buying prisoners fans. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like I don't know what Constellation's done really to expand the people, you know, the prisoner to other people who like the, pri- you know, to new people to like the prisoner. Right. Mm-hmm. If you liked the prisoner, you kind of still like the prisoner. And if you didn't like the prisoner, I'm not sure that's changing now that like, a new operator has it right um so those are the things that i i think make more sense in terms of what you're saying zach that Mm -hmm. the bet i would take is is the gallo bet also i mean they're the biggest wine company Mm -hmm. you know at this point in the world i wouldn't bet against them so three more quick hits all at once (laughs) not related to beverage so let's talk media Mm -hmm. so there's been uh, some really big stuff that's happened in the media world that we live in uh food and beverage media of the past few months so three things in particular uh and we'll hit two of these pretty quickly i think and one we'll go a little bit deeper on so first two jancis robinson deciding to sell Mm -hmm. uh to a new private equity firm that is basically creating a sort of suite of publications Mm -hmm. what's interesting i think in this regard is that she sold to a group that is mostly trying to revive old titles so they bought like savor and things like that Mm -hmm. so i'm a little like and these are not media operators so Mm -hmm. again who knows two is Meredith selling to IAC? That's still again reported. It hasn't gone through yet, but mm-hmm. that's going to be a massive deal. Um, you know, again, IAC has an incredible track record when they bought media, even though it never seems to make sense. And this one, again, to most people, is a head scratcher, especially because they already own Dot Dash, which is a very large sort of SEO media firm, mm-hmm. but still has been successful. Most people think that's because they're an IPO, but again, and then third is the infatuation selling to a bank to J.P. Morgan. Mm-hmm. So again, like. A lot of people question like why that happened. So I guess in the first two, for, in the first two, you know, before we dive into uh, the infatuation at the end. So in terms of you know, Jancis, mm-hmm. I, I mean, any reaction besides maybe she's just old and doesn't have someone who could take this over? I, I couldn't understand why she sold. I, I I think it's because I mean I don't know her numbers and her audience or anything like that, but yeah, it's it's got to be small. I'm guessing it's small, and so maybe this is an opportunity to, like you said, be a part of the suite of brands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, what you've seen across a lot of publishers at like, um, you know, like a Condé Nast or, uh, whatever Meredith, I guess, Mm -hmm. is using the resources across brands. Right. Right. So having access to different resources for your publication. One sales team that sells across all publications. Yeah. Like one marketing team. Copy editing, research, all of it across brands. So maybe that's this could have been a great opportunity for that for her. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think also like, you know, you mentioned the the sort of just end of an era kind of uh, idea, Adam. And I think, you know, there's something too where like 
Jancis has people who work for her, but obviously the the name of the website and the reputation is hers. And I don't know what you do with that mm-hmm. if she stops writing or, or can't you know, can't write as much. And obviously we've seen other publications like, you know, Wine Advocate continue on even after Robert Parker retired. Um, and he was not obviously the sole reviewer for a long time, but you know, I, I think it makes sense if I were, if I were Jancis to say, Hey, someone, someone who has more, you know, deeper pockets, but also just as, as Joanna was saying, kind of more avenues in which we can continue to keep this, this brand alive and maybe grow it. It just makes more sense than, you know, trying to pass it on to to some to a person or a small group of people. But I think you just bring up a really good point that I'm curious if either of you can think of an example. Do I can either of you think of media companies that are named after a person mm-hmm. who have can that have continued to do well post that person's retirement, passing, etc. Like the reason Wine Advocate has continued is because he never named it Robert Parker. There were, it said Robert Parker's mm-hmm. wine advocate, but it was really easy to take his mm-hmm. name away and just call it the wine advocate. Mm-hmm. Like it, this is jancesrobinson.com. You know, the only thing I guess you could potentially say is similar is like the Rob report. Isn't that named after someone? Rob yeah. named Rob. So like, it's Rob's <laughs> report. But again, like, <laughs> we sound Shoot like us an email, Rob, let us know who you are. Rob, we're trying to we're trying to check out like what what yacht should I buy, Rob? <laughs> so, you know, like can you think of any? I don't know. I'm trying to think. I can't. I think there are brands that are obviously like associated with one person. Yeah. Well, like how about like Martha Stewart, right? Oh, like what yes. will that be great. like? Like That's a great example. I mean, she's still active, but like, I mean, Mar- I don't know exactly how old Martha Stewart is, but like, I'm such a She's Martha. Right, right. I mean, dude, she did time. I mean, obviously she's bigger than Jancis for sure. But um, yeah. you yeah, know, Oprah, I mean, like there's obviously these things exist, but those people are still at the head of them. Yeah. So I don't know. Rachel Ray. Right, Rachel Ray. Yeah. yeah I don't know. It's a, it's a question. What, what will happen? Will they continue to go on? I mean, I, I, I Martha, guess it's good that you guys uh, didn't name it Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon's Vine Pair. <laughs> No, we would never do that. We, you know, we don't, we, we don't roll that way. <laughs> yeah, like that, that's a little clunky yeah, on the mask. Rob, Rob and his report. <laughs> Seriously, Rob, if you could hit me up later, I need to know about a castle. I'm looking into a castle to buy. Look me up. I mean, could you imagine that there's a dude that was like, let me just share my friends on all the rich shit I'm into. <laughs> just yeah. like, oh my God. Tax the rich. Anyway. So finally the other two. So Meredith, I mean, I think that that is pretty much proof, right? Prince fucked. Like that's all you can say, right? Like they've they've tried so many different so many ways. Times. Yeah. Um, you know, you have like it, half the titles were owned by Time. Times mm-hmm. R.I.P. You know, like I, Prince fucked. Like mm-hmm. that's all you could. It's just not the same. It's not the roaring days of like print magazines where people had insane expense accounts and were like flying private everywhere and like it just doesn't exist. And I think you know a lot of these publications, including Meredith didn't really adapt i mean mm-hmm. and a lot of the revenue if you look at it from so many of their titles now are event-based mm-hmm. yeah like, well that's what i was gonna say right like isn't the possibly the most valuable property attached to food and wine is like all the festivals exactly. they do and and, and probably right. and probably aspen right like i've never been yeah. uh obviously it's a competitor so i'm you know <laughs> not gonna sorry but like you, you didn't have to wear a disguise to get in i wasn't like invited to like chair a panel or anything Thing. Wow. <laughs> like, but you know yeah I, I would say and like what but and that's not even you know food and wine so like when 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 
Barry Diller has been talking about buying it. Like that hasn't even been a publication that's really they've even said. It's sure. been other publications at Meredith that they're more excited to get. And, you know, I think that are probably bigger and, and have a wider reach. Um, you know, so so we, we shall see. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, again, mm-hmm. like maybe IAC believes they can make these publications truly digital. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the only reason he's buying it. He sees an opportunity to sort of, you know, take these titles and compete uh, digitally. And most people think that when this happens, Dot Dash, which is now in the family, right, is going to IPO, mm-hmm. right? Because that's like brides.com and, uh, you know, a bunch of other pu- like platforms that they have, the, the biggest being the Spruce, mm-hmm. sort of like their most successful. And it's, it's a, you know, that's an SEO media company that's been yep. really successful. Mm-hmm. But again, and so then maybe they're looking to, you know, because they're, they're private equity, right? So now they're looking to like tune up another group. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, because this one's just so interesting is, the infatuation, which some people listen to the podcast may not know, because uh, it's really much more of like a New York media company. I feel like, like when I'll ask people in other cities, they, they're not as familiar with it. Being bought by J.P. Morgan, um, this one's interesting. I think for a few reasons. One, like why sell now? And I think that, that was a question that I got from a lot of people. I think a lot of people forget that they are restaurant reviews, mm-hmm. and they had a really hard COVID um, mm-hmm. when no one's going out to eat, no one's reading about going out to eat, mm-hmm. and then you know it was also like. It all happened right after they acquired Zagat. Yeah, I think they dumped a lot of money into Zagat. And I think, you know, if you read the Wall Street Journal article, it says they they clearly tried to raise some additional rounds of financing. You know, their private equity fund that had given them $30 million a few years ago clearly didn't come back in. Mm-hmm. And so I think they were unable to raise and then they started looking for a buyer. But this buyer is really interesting because it's a bank. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm curious, like when, when you guys saw this, especially Joanna, when you saw it being – in media for as long as I have, like, what did you think? Like, oh my God, like, like if you had been, if you'd been, you know, running a publication that had been bought by a bank, like, what would you do? Yeah. I mean, I, I think everything would just change, yeah. <laughs> know that things would change um, and that it would be a completely different company. Totally. And I know that they're meant to like retain independence, right. Yeah. And their creative uh, direction and stuff. But, but yeah, I think, I think things will change for them. Um, and I mean, we talked about this briefly before we started recording, but like, kind of like Resi, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, owned by American Express and it's really just, uh, what, just like, uh, added benefit for American Express, um, card holders. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. Like, I mean, people sort of hinted at that, that like they think Chase is trying to build a competitor, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if you look at the, the world of credit cards, right? Like, Amex has sort of like the premium card holder, mm-hmm. but you know, what was it now? God, I don't even know how long the, the chase Sapphire reserve card has been out. Mm-hmm. What is it? Six years, seven years, eight years. But like that card has became like the up and coming or well-off millennial credit card of mm-hmm. in, in vogue. Right. And so <laughs> they're clearly trying to stay connected to that audience. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and, and infatuation, I think does that yeah. really well. And so I think, you know, the, the really interesting thing was a, a take I read recently that basically said that, you know, what, what Chase is doing is basically they're buying the audience. They're, 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 you're going to basically, you're going to go to their site. All you're going to see is Chase content. Mm-hmm. I think they'll probably stop a lot of major partnerships because what's the point of that? Like Chase doesn't care about that kind of revenue anymore, mm-hmm. but that basically they will use this audience to convert into card membership. Mm-hmm. And you know, that there's basically there's a prediction amongst a lot of people in media that this is going to become a trend in, for the next few years oh, where, man. yeah, <laughs> where a lot of media companies are going to get bought by 
you know, smaller media companies, but we'll get bought by not us, but we'll get bought by, uh, cause we're the biggest, but anyways, we'll, we'll, we'll get bought by, you know, tech companies, larger, you know, banks, real estate. If you're like a small, you know, a decent sized real estate blog, et cetera, as a way to buy the audience, as opposed to like looking at it and saying, okay, well, this is how much it costs to advertise on this platform for five years. Well, why mm-hmm. don't I just like exploit this audience for five years? And then once I've used up the audience, like who really cares, mm-hmm. right? And I, I hadn't really thought about that. It makes sense. Like if you, if, you know, if JP Morgan looked at this and said, okay, well, how much have we been spending on sites like the infatuation to advertise, you know, in the last year? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, if we just pay, you know, the price, grab them, just buy them, <laughs> right. And then just run this thing till it's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Until it just, it, it's not cool anymore or whatever. That's fine. We, we've got, like, we've gotten our use out of it, right. which is kind of depressing. Very depressing. Very depressing <laughs> on the media <laughs> side. Yeah. And sort of cynically, probably if you do that with some success, you're probably in parallel launching another publication without a, you know, a thin shell around marketing. And you're probably then, you know, you can just transition everything over to the new site, whatever it is, whether you buy it or, or, you know, or, or start it yourself. I think there's, there's something about this idea of like that rolling, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's like a marketing campaign it now that's what these are, right? They're, they're not, it's just you know this this uh, this cycle is going to be the infatuation. Who knows what comes after it? I want to ask you guys one one question that's connected to this because it's about these, in particular, banks and and credit card companies looking at investments. Like, mm-hmm. how long before you see mm-hmm. these places? And maybe they already are. I, I'm not as knowledgeable as I could be on this. Directly invested yeah. in not just things like Resi, which are you know platforms for people to to make reservations and have experiences, not just media publications, but literal physical experiences, right? Like what is stopping, I mean, maybe there are laws, but I have no idea. What's stopping Chase from buying, well, shit, they could have bought Coppola and having and turning that into a Chase card holders only experience or some other highly sought after destination. Um, do you, does that make any sense? Is Are we going to see that in, in this space? Yeah. Or does that become just inherently uncool because it's like, you're going to a I bank. mean even if they say it's even if they say it's a winery you're going to a bank I don't know I think it's I think I mean this is not the same at all but like at the US Open mm-hmm. the American Express booths and like exclusive card holders only kind of um experiences that people could access if they if they had American Express obviously not the same as like um, an American Express only winery but like people like exclusivity yeah. and things yeah. like that I think I think that's I think if Amex has proven anything, yeah, that's that helps retain cardholders. I mean, mm-hmm. like they are not yeah. cutting back; they are expanding the Centurion lounges. Mm-hmm. You know, like these are super exclusive lounges and airports that you can't walk into without a platinum card, mm-hmm. right? So, like, yeah, I think a winery where the only people that can get the wine are cardholders, and the people that can visit the wine are called are cardholders. Yeah, I mean, like, look, a lot of wineries already sort of do that in their own um, membership, mm-hmm. right? Like Scribe is a great I example. Was just gonna, I was yeah. thinking of Scribe. You can't visit Scribe unless you are a member. Yeah. Belo- yeah, you're a member. So like, yeah, I mean, I, I think who knows, like could Soho House open their own winery? Oh, whoa. You know, like- What an idea. Maybe, because people, <laughs> again, there, there's just, especially post COVID, like there's just so much money at the very high end yeah. of the market mm-hmm. that, and there's people who are just like looking to spend it mm-hmm. that I think that's why a lot of the, you know, to bring this full circle, that's why a lot of this stuff has happened in the past few months, all these transactions, because there's just so much money out there. And so, which is crazy, right? Only at the high end, we're sitting here like, what about the low end? <laughs> but, you know, and, and so for that group of people, you know, they're looking for 
as many amazing experiences as possible. Maybe they're not looking to like, you know, join clubs where they watch people kill each other, uh, you know, playing children's games, but you know, Squid Is that Squid a Hunger Games reference. I'm, I'm unclear what we're going there. Uh, Squid Game, oh. you know, but like, but you know, the VIPs, the VIPs episode. But anyways, <laughs> but you know, you are at this point where yes, there, there's, there's people looking for the ability to have opportunities that you cannot have unless you are at their level. Mm-hmm. And so, it's yeah. luxury, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 100%, I think that that could happen, which is kind of sad, but yeah, I could see it happening. Mm-hmm. Well, Zach, Joanna, this is great. Talk to you Friday. We're talking about shots. Yes. <laughs> Can't wait. Sounds good. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tasty's director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.